everybody, Scott Burnside back for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the playoff edition, Tuesday morning. I, I, I listen. I gotta, I gotta tell you, for most of this, I have it's been a bit foggy, right? Trying to figure out who, you know, who's gonna accomplish what, where are the trends, who's good, who's lousy. We're starting to see a little bit of clarity now. We see, you know, Tampa starting to push away pesky Columbus up 3-1 now after their victory on Monday. Uh, Boston, oh my gosh, the collapse of Carolina. Scoring, Boston scoring four unanswered goals to go up 3-1 on the once mighty Canes. Uh, Philadelphia's got a chance to go ahead of Montreal. They're up 2-1. They play this afternoon. Um, but in the East, the series that is, uh, has been the biggest whitewash thus far is the New York Islanders up 3-0 on the Washington Capitals. And to help shed some clarity on all of this, Arthur Staple, our man who covers the Islanders for the Athletic New York City, has joined us. And uh, Arthur, before we get to Caps, Islanders, I also have a chance to complete the sweep this evening, but I have a more important question for you. You're in a bar. You've got two credits left on the jukebox. Edie Brickell or Peter Gabriel? I think you know the answer to this question, my friend. <laughs> I actually, the, the most the most disappointing thing about Islanders caps in the pandemic is there's no post-game revelry at the Irish Channel in downtown DC that really makes it it doesn't feel like an Isles cap series without it so um that's a sad that's a sad note of (laughs) of a few sad notes of the last few months but (laughs) not for the Islanders right now no, that's true. Well, and I do know the answer. If for you, it's I don't think it's any of the above. So anyway, oh, it would but, be Peter Gabriel. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I feel pretty strongly about that. <laughs> anyway, it's it, it is a shame because you're right. I mean, part of all of this, and you know, you and I've been doing this a long time, and uh, to you know, think of all the nights we've crossed paths, and you know, whether it's been Washington or Pittsburgh or wherever it's been, it it, it is. It is that sort of decompression and unloading the game with other uh, ink-stained wretches uh, and complaining about whatever it is we want to complain about. And and I, I miss that. I miss that contact. And uh, and and what I miss most about it now is that this is a this is an Islander team that not only are they up three nothing on the Capitals, but they have been absolutely dominant. Like I I honestly thought that Florida would be way way better and I actually thought that was a pretty good matchup for the Panthers you know against the Islanders uh, that wasn't the case and I really did think that Washington you know was would might you know sort of find its its footing like as we've seen Boston do as we've seen now St. Louis in the West do um, it just hasn't happened and I wonder when you look at this Islander team a team that uh, last year was swept in the second round by the Carolina Hurricanes I mean is it it is it dramatically different? Are we just talking about shades of difference that have seem, seemingly made this team much more imposing? You know, it looks um, it looks a lot like the Islanders-Penguins series from the first round last year, to my eyes. You know, yes. and I think both of these series have kind of looked that way. Um, I didn't think Florida was going to put up much of a fight just because they haven't really looked very together all season long, and that's a hard thing to put put back and you know to kind of put into place even with a guy like Joel Quenville but I certainly thought that Washington would not look like Florida facing the Islanders and that's how they look and I think that at that point once it's two teams you have to say 
it's clearly what the Islanders are doing and not the failures of the Caps. And I understand that, you know, Nick Backstrom is out and John Carlson clearly doesn't look 100%. And there's plenty, you know, Lars Eller didn't play game one. There's plenty of excuses on the Washington side. Um, and also just the, the mental fortitude that you need to get through several weeks in the bubble that none of us can really uh, put ourselves in that position. But uh, but it does seem like the teams that are the most capital T team are the ones that are going to succeed. And the Islanders certainly have have you know pushed that line in, inside and outside their team since Lou Lamorello got there and since Barry Trotz got there. Um, they don't have a ton of flashy names or big stars. They they only really succeed when they're all playing well together and rolling their four lines and all that other coach speak. But um, the fact that they got to that game right from the puck drop uh, against Florida and they've carried it through, I think, is the main, you know, there's been lots of inconsistencies everywhere else, uh, even for the teams that are going pretty well, but they really haven't wavered. And I think that's maybe the most surprising thing that it's been whatever, almost three weeks in the bubble, and the Islanders look as fresh as uh, as they did, um, you know, in their Phase 3 camp when they were, everyone was just coming back to the ice. But this, and you know what I find fascinating about this? Is it, and we, it's impossible to draw a line from what was happening on March 12th when the NHL paused, and then you try and extrapolate how a team might behave, you know, once they show up in the bubble and all those kinds of things. But but at the pause, the Islanders were not particularly impressive, right? They had gone more than a little sideways. Uh, it you know even after I thought a, a very interesting and astute trade deadline for Lou Lamorello. You know I thought Andy Green was a nice pickup, even though it may have been a lot to give up for a, for a veteran D. But maybe that's because I think Andy's just wonderful. Uh, and uh, J.G. Pajot, of course, coming over and immediately being uh, extended by the Islanders after a, a tremendous year in in Ottawa, but really took some time for Pajot, like, you know, sort of not really the immediate impact. Um, and yet this team does seem to have been able to take advantage of A, the pause, and then B, the, the, the training camp process to sort of restart themselves. It, does it look like that to you, or is that just me, you know, sort of pontificating from afar? No, it definitely does. I mean, it, and it really, it wasn't just a few weeks before the lockdown came, it was a few months and they were really, you know, they, it's hard to remember all the way back to October and November when they had a, a franchise record setting 17 game, you know, on point streak of 15, 0 and two, and looked very much like the same team that had, had exceeded expectations, uh, in 2018, 19. Um, but then some injuries hit, you know, I think they got a little out of what they usually do. And, you know, I think it comes down to, uh, just the wearing and tearing of playing that style of trying to grind teams down and forecheck and block shots and be physical on your own end and push people out of the way. Everybody tries to do it, but the Islanders' success rides on it. They don't have anyone really outside of maybe Matthew Barzal that can take them to that next level in an individual base. So, um, you know, the the rest was needed for guys that were injured. Obviously, you know, these are not household names, but but guys like Adam Pellick, Casey Zizekas, Cal Clutterbuck, who missed significant time with injuries, all got healthy. Uh, Pajot, who you mentioned, clearly was trying to do too much in those couple weeks that he was with the Islanders after the trade deadline, um, and he had some time to kind of sit back and and think about things and become more of the you know more of an Islander and figure out his role in there. And and I think Barry Trotz, armed with a full arsenal of players uh, and ideas for from four months of sitting around, that's 
it's a long time for a for a good coach like that. So um, you know, he kept himself busy and his coaching staff was busy. And I think seeing some of the wrinkles that they've put in, um, you know, especially on special teams on the power play against Florida, that really was a you know kind of an under you know an underrated factor in that series. That the Islanders' power play was almost as good as Florida's power play. Um, you know, I think all of those things kind of combined to to show that uh, that this team may have been the one that benefited the most so far from from four months away. We had uh, Tarek Elbashir on last week, and we were talking about this series, and uh, it was, certainly wasn't as dire as it is now for the Washington Capitals. But that that coaching dynamic, you know, with Todd Reardon, who replaced Barry Trotz, of course, after winning the Cup in 2018, was part of Barry's staff, and then Barry, of course, taking that job almost immediately with the Islanders. Do you think? Do you think the players are? You know, like are the Islanders so engaged in this that it's really they want to help Barry crush the Capitals? Like, do you think there is that dynamic to it? Because I I can't help but believe that this would be enormously satisfying for Barry Trotz. Right, he's one of the great coaches of his generation. Finally, won a Stanley Cup in Washington in eighteen, and then you know, and you know, by that point, I think it knew in his heart of hearts he was leaving, um, and now he's got a team. That's on the verge of, uh, of of sweeping them and really humbling the Washington Capitals. I mean, do you think that plays into it for the players, or is that are the players just like, okay, when do we play again? Are we playing bocce today on our off day? Uh, <laughs> what kind of Uber eats are we getting today? Or uh, how do you think that plays into it? Uh, I mean, I think there's a little bit of it. Maybe there's more motivation for for Trotz and Lane Lambert. Um, not that they were forced out by any means. Uh, you know, financially, maybe you could say that they were. Um, but uh, but I think it was, you know, I think that stuff kind of happens above the players' heads. If, for any of the players, if there's extra motivation, it's the guys that are the holdovers from that that knockdown, dragout 2015 first-round series that went down to the third period of Game 7. You know, the, a lot of guys from that, uh, from that era of the Islanders who have been through many ups and downs, mostly downs, um, certainly remember how physical it was and how, you know, they felt... Uh, you know, some of the hits that were pretty borderline. Tom Wilson on Lubomir Vizhnovsky is the one that stands out. Um, there's guys that have long memories about that, almost as long as some of the Islander fans, which is pretty impressive because Islander fans remember everything that's <laughs> yeah, happened no to kidding. this organization in the last <laughs> 20 years. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's little motivations here and there, but but really... I do believe it when they say we're just we're worried about ourselves. I think the the way that they played in 2018-19 may have been a bit of a revelation to even some of the long, you know, some of those long-standing Islanders having a a coaching staff as prepared and and um as, you know, as structured as Trotz's was and uh very clear on the way that they needed to play to be successful. Um, so they've experienced what they need to do and, and it's really more about them doing it than, you know, I, I think like we were saying at the top, you know, Florida, Washington, it really doesn't matter if the Islanders are playing the way that they want to play. Um, they're have a very good chance to win a game because they don't allow a lot of second chances. Um, you know, they do all these things that, uh, that, that flummox an opponent, whether it's a, a recent Stanley Cup champ like Washington or a team that's a total disaster like Florida. It's uh, to be able to treat all your opponents the same is, uh, is a real uh, feather in Trotz's cap that he's got his guys playing the way that they want to be. Yeah. 
You mentioned Lane Lambert, such an interesting guy, uh, and his name had has come up in the last, you know, I would say last off season, maybe even the off season before, um, as a guy who is in that group of uh, assistant or associate coaches um, who seem ready to take that next step and take over their own NHL team. I, I can't help but think because there are going to be a number of uh, of openings. We already know there are some interim coaches who are likely not going to be uh, coming back as head coaches. And I wonder if you think maybe this is the off season, as crazy as it will be. And whenever it happens in, you know, early October to mid to late November, when camp starts up again, is this, is this maybe the time for him? Or I just wonder what you think, because I do think he's a guy that really, he's going to get a shot. It's just a question of when. Yeah, and I think the longer the Islanders go in this bubble and there's, you know, all eyes are on them um, as the teams kind of dwindle down, I think that that'll definitely help his cause that if there's owners or general managers that are out there thinking who, you know, who haven't we interviewed, who who aren't we considering, um, well, you look to the behind the bench of the teams that are still standing in this tournament. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I have to I have to feel that if there's more than just a few openings um, that he'll get strong consideration or maybe be at the, you know, kind of the head of the pack. Um, and I think, you know, the, the fact that the Islanders felt it was a surprise that he was even still around. I think everybody around the team felt that, that Lane was going to get the ducks job that went to Dallas Aikens last off season. Uh, I think he was probably the runner up for that job. So it was kind of a, you know, almost a pleasant surprise. Maybe it wasn't for, for Lane that, uh, he had to stick around and be an associate coach for another year. But I think, um, benefiting from his presence uh, as Trotz has you know since his Nashville days uh, was a big help to this organization and I'm sure it was a big help during those months when coaches were just having the zoom meetings from all over the continent and trying to figure out how they were going to get into this mentally and physically when things did start back up so uh, it's always important to have that kind of experience and and as long as the owners go here uh, I'm sure it will keep his profile as high as possible Arthur you are a true champion. Thank you for hanging out with us this morning. I, I can't wait till at some point when we actually, you know, sort of connect at a socially safe distance in the same place and we're huddling over music choices and I'm trying to stop you from playing the 10th Tragically Hip song in a row, I'll just to say, well, but that will be a good day. But uh, as always, you should read Arthur at uh, The Athletic New York City and follow him at Stape Athletic. And... Of course, your fine podcast, No Sleep Till Belmont. That's one of my favorite podcast titles, by the way. That's that's I I hope that's your that that's your concoction. Uh, it was. It was a group effort, but uh, I can I can take some small credit for it. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Anyway, terrific work. And when we come back from this upcoming break, we are going to go west, and we are going to talk to Ryan S. Clark about the juggernaut known as the Colorado Avalanche. So don't go away. We'll be right back. I love my high student loan payment, said no one ever. So you should check to see if refinancing with Ernest could help you lower your monthly payments. Checking takes just two minutes. If you've been making the same monthly payment on your student loans for the last couple of years, odds are you could reduce your payment and save by refinancing with Ernest. If you've refinanced before, With today's low-rate environment, most people could save by refinancing again. Plus, there's no origination fee or any other fees. 
Plus, the internet loves earnest customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. And now, you can get $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan with earnest.com slash two men. Once again, you get $100 cash bonus when you refi your student loan at earnest.com slash two men. Not available in all states, so visit earnest.com slash two men for more details. Terms and AMP conditions apply. Earnest student loan refinance loans are made by Earnest Operations LLC NMLS number 1204917, California Financing Law License number 6054788, 303 2nd Street, Suite 401N, San Francisco, California, 94107. Visit earnest.com slash licenses for a full list of licensed states. Ryan, how are you this morning? Good, Scott. How are you doing? I, I'm I'm excellent. I'm st- I'm every morning. I'm in I, I'm in the same place. I'm in my closet upstairs. Uh, I keep saying this. I'm like Harry Potter in the you know living under the staircase at his uncle and aunt's house. I know it's getting tired that I keep saying that, but it does still feel that way. I, I, I want to ask you. I've never asked you this. What's the S stand for? Um, Soto. So what it is is my mother's maiden name was that, and um, there were. Four girls and one boy born in her family, and so none of them had children that could carry on the name. So I was the one who carried it on, and so yeah, it's it's for that. But also, it's like um, my mom's family; um, they're from England, France, and Spain, and so yeah, it's just it's that, and it's one of those things because as a kid you get teased about it, but then as you get older and learn more about the name, like it's something you're proud of. So yeah, that's just what it is. All right, good. Well, it it sounds like a, a, there's a certain amount of pressure carrying that extra initial in the middle, but you're uh, so far you're doing well. I just want you to know that you're holding. <laughs> Thank you. You're you're holding up your end of it, and it's a great segue. More than holding up uh, their end of things in the Western Conference, the Colorado Avalanche, and uh, I, honestly, I had to turn away at parts of uh, yesterday's game. It finished up seven one. Colorado over the uh, flailing Arizona Coyotes, and I, I listen. I, I think everyone knew that Arizona was going to be in in real trouble here, and the fact that they actually managed to win a game uh, due entirely to Darcy Kemper's heroics. But uh, it just seems to me like the Avs are one of those teams that are are doing what you want to do in a playoff run, even as one as unusual as this, and that is to sort of build you know, towards something. And, you know, we're going to see some interesting second round matchups. And I know it's wrong to count Arizona out because it's 3-1 this series, but they are cooked. And I think everyone knows that. And I wonder what you have seen, you know, through the the round robin, which is really hard to get your arms around, but certainly through the first four games of this uh, first round series against Arizona. Are, are we seeing the Avs sort of, you know, sort of building toward, okay, this is, you know, we're here to we're in it to win it sort of thing. Certainly. I mean, it's heading in that direction just because when you look at what this team did last year, getting to the conference semifinal, they losing seven games to the sharks. The thought was, what do they do to kind of get back to that point? What's the encore? Granted, no one saw COVID-19 happening and what you've seen from this team in the round Robin. And so far in the quarterfinal round against the coyotes is a team that, 
has really only lost twice. I mean, the first loss was by a goal in overtime to the Golden Knights. And a second one was because Darcy Kemper had one of the best performances, not just of a goaltender, but a players enjoyed this postseason. But beyond that, what you've seen is a team that's really stayed committed to certain details offensively in the sense of not just getting pucks on net, but making sure that you can shield goaltenders, that you're fighting for rebound chances, that you're creating rebound chances. And then on defense, one that's committed to checking, um, one that is making sure it takes away space from other teams, but more importantly, one where everybody's committed to all these defensive details and not just one or two or, or maybe three players. And so that's what you're seeing is you're seeing this complete effort. And not only that, but you're seeing all the pieces fit. So, you know, look, everybody's talked about the McKinnon line and what they've been able to do, but you've seen Nazem Kadri, regardless of who's been on the wing, be, along with McKinnon, arguably their best forward this postseason. Whereas if you look at what the fourth line has done, I mean, it's a group that it didn't play a lot because of the injuries in the regular season, but you've seen them come together to really give this team a component it lacked last year. And then with the defensive pairings, I mean, you know, yes, there were some changes. Of course, McCarr is, is here more full-time. Ryan Graves is playing. But what you've seen is you've seen a group where it's so multifunctional to where they've been able to provide so many different things for Jared Bednar on top of the fact that you've had two goaltenders who've looked as strong as anyone this postseason in Pavel Francouz and Philip Grubauer. It's, you know what? It, it, I'm not sure. Maybe Joe Sackick is, you know, it does get his due. Um, but I think it's taken some time, and I think he would probably admit it took him some time to grow into the um, into the job as general manager. I mean, there was the whole, you know, that very emotional and, and ultimately, uh, you know, and whether tumultuous is the right way to describe it, relationship with Patrick Waugh and, you know, who left late in the offseason that opened the door for Jared Bednar to come in and, you know, suffer through just a horrific first year as an NHL head coach. But you mentioned Nazem Kadri. I just think of some of the, the, the pieces that have been added to what was already a, a terrific core. You know, you know, guys like Andre Burakovsky, who simply, you know, he never quite, never quite found that lane, if I can use that term, uh, with the Washington Capitals, but I think has been really important to this team. And, um, you know, Pierre-Edouard Belmar, who, of course, is, uh, you know, one of the premier defensive forwards in the NHL and was really important of uh, part of that Vegas team. I wonder if you, if when you look at the construction of this team, whether it, maybe it surprises you that it's come together this quickly for Joe Sackick or what, what your take is on how that team has been built. You know, it's interesting because we have a story up on The Athletic right now about Nazem Kadri where I got a chance to speak with Ray Ferraro and John Shannon. And John Shannon made this interesting observation about Joe Sackick. And he's like, you know, look, Joe has a great eye for talent. He undersells his own ability. He's done a magnificent job. I go back to the Shane trade. That, to me, was Joe coming. Joe's coming out party. We all thought... Joe wants to be a president. Joe does not want to be a manager. Joe does not want to get his hands dirty day to day. He's proved us all wrong. And when you look at the moves that have been made, whether it be this past offseason with getting guys like Andre Burakovsky, uh, Jonas Donskoy, uh, Pierre-Edward Belmar, Nazem Kadri, even Valery Nichushkin, um, and, and, and that decision – all the way down to how they've drafted, it seems like things are just sort of coming together. But when you look at those signings and you look at how they've impacted this team, it supplemented a lot of what they did. So with Kadri, we've talked so much about how they needed a second-line center. They tried to do it internally, but it just was something they had to more or less outsource. With Burakovsky, 
the same thing. I mean, we we talk about you know a guy like him who had this history in Washington, but it was always this inconsistency, which led to a lack of playing time or vice versa. Whereas if he comes here now, he's guaranteed a top nine role, and that's just it. It's like when you look at the players they acquired. I mean, Belmar is a player that you know look. In Vegas, he had a role, but it was clear that he was going to go elsewhere. But when you look at all these other players, they're kind of collection pieces from the island of misfit toys, in a sense, where there was no room for Burakovsky in D.C. because of the cap and because of their options at Ford. I mean, same thing with Kadri in Toronto. Um, Don Skoy was a player who needed a change of scenery when it came to leaving San Jose. And Nichushkin was a guy that some people thought was going to be out of the league for the rest of his career, if not maybe for a few more years because he was going to return to Russia. And yet what you've seen is you find these players assimilating themselves into a team that was already pre-existing. And not only that, but really carving roles that's allowed them to stand out and flourish. And the last thing I'll add to that is, you know, two other examples of that would be Ryan Graves and Pablo Francois. So yes, they're already in the Avalanche system, but Ryan Graves spends four years in the Rangers system, never gets a call up. He comes to the Colorado Avalanche. He spends one year with Greg Cronin, who they have some really difficult heart-to-hearts. And it's led from Ryan Graves going to, oh, he might be someone you could call up in a situation to now. He is a first-pairing defenseman the Avalanche are using alongside Kale McCarr to really balance out that, that defensive pairing. But then when you look at Pavel Francouz, before he signed his most recent contract, people were looking at him as... Should the Red Wings, the Devils, these teams in need of goaltending go after him this summer because he's going to be a UFA? Of course, the Avalanche sent him to a two-year deal. But remember, the Avalanche were the only team that offered him a contract after those Olympic Games in 2018. And look how that move's turned out. So again, it just falls into this theme where one team might see one thing, but someone like Joe Sackick and his front office staff see something different and they put it together. It's interesting you should talk about him, and uh, I've never pronounced his name correctly until now. Francouz, is that right? Yeah, you can say Pablo Francouz, Pablo Francouz, but like when I've asked him about it, he says like Francouz, so it's kind of like the C-O-U-Z is almost like Souza, except for it's just Suze. Nice. Well, uh, now I know that, and once again, it's always good to know more than when you started a conversation. But I was talking to a former NHL goaltender and analyst who, who mentioned him earlier in the season, and he said, watch out because he is ready to be an NHL starter. So it'll be fascinating to see, you know, of course, with an expansion draft coming up with Seattle, how, you know, how this plays out not only for him but for the Avs. But um, I, I'm curious how you view when you sort of step back and you look at the Western Conference now, and it does seem way too much way too early to be doing this but i'm going to do it anyway it does seem to me that we have colorado vegas uh the top two teams that coming out of the round robin um i thought frankly it, it was to colorado's benefit to be the number two seed and to draw arizona as opposed to having to play chicago which of course vegas is doing but it does seem like we're almost on a collision course with those teams no disrespect to Dallas and Calgary, St. Louis, Vancouver, those two series knotted at two games apiece now. But it does seem that things are setting themselves up nicely for what would be an epic Western Conference final. Do you, do you, are you with me on this or do you, is, there, is, there, is it way too early to be imagining that? It's definitely the latter just because I think you look at last postseason, people thought the Tampa Bay Lightning were going to march toward a Stanley Cup and look how that turned out. And people thought the Calgary Flames were going to go further and – Again, it didn't come to fruition the way they would have liked as well. And not only that, but, I mean, that's the serious answer to give. The, the sarcastic one is, as you and I have discussed before, 
in the year of our Lord, 2020 AD, no one knows what's going to happen because, again, it's 2020. But not only that, but I think when you look at the NHL playoffs, you just never know how things are going to change. Look, the Vancouver Canucks go up 2 nothing on the St. Louis Blues in that series, and people are thinking, okay, what's wrong with the Blues? They didn't look great in the round robin. Like, what's going on? And here you are now on a Tuesday morning going, you know... Lose no one back. really knows <laughs> no one really knows what's going to happen and so look when you look at Arizona and, and their situation against the the Colorado Avalanche it appears the Coyotes are game shy of just you know, being out of the bubble and you know their their coach Rutkin even said yesterday we had guys who looked like they wanted to go home which after a game four loss that's something if you're a player you probably don't want to hear but at the same time, you have to hear it after getting crushed 7-1. to one. But what Colorado and Vegas have done is they've been playing this sort of style of hockey since they got in the bubble that's made people say it's going to be one of those two. Whether you're a Vegas odds maker, you're a fan or an observer, you look at those two and you think, okay, it should be them. But at the same time, you just never know. So let me ask you this. Do you think, given the dynamics, and I, 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 I just I applaud Rick Tockett for – like that must it must have been hard for him to be on the bench. It must have been hard for Rod Brindamore to be on the bench and watch his team uh, completely fold uh, against a Boston team without its top goaltender and its top goal scorer. Um, and so maybe there is something to this notion of in this dynamic in this playoff series. It, it's not just are you you know are you running out of gas? Are you you know is it systems? All those things that at the back of your mind there is this uh, you know. If we, I could, we could be going home, right? Because it's not, you might be at home in the normal course of a playoff series. And so that's dynamic doesn't enter into it. And I wonder if you think that's part of, you know, the, the will to win. And I thought Rick Tockett said basically the the teams that are, that want to stay here and want to win are the ones that are, are going to have success. And the teams that, you know, sort of are thinking about going home, well, that's where they're going to end up going. I'm sort of doing a bad job paraphrasing it, but I wonder if if you think the dynamics are different because of that in terms of when a team gets pushed to the wall, maybe the the idea of, you know what, I, I'm, I've been here a long time and I miss my kids. Sort of difficult to say just because you never know about the, the human element of it, but then there's also something to be said for how the human element of it changes when a team is doing well versus when it's not, just because... Anybody going into the bubble, especially those with with you know families, they've all said, "Look, this is going to be a difficult sort of uh, environment because you're away from them, but at the same time, you know why you're there." And that's something a lot of players throughout the league have said. Now, when you look at just again the on ice component of let's say what's gone on with the Arizona Coyotes, they're a team that look they're able to get past the National Predators. But at the same time, when you're playing that kind of style against the Avalanche, you might win a game or two. But even then, you know what you're up against. I mean, you're asking your goaltending to, to be at its best all the time. And not only that, but you're asking for these defensive details that while you're taking on all this pressure, that while this is happening, you're able to maybe block a shot or recover a rebound that allows you to get on a breakout against one of the quickest teams in the league, hoping that you can find some space in an opening. But yet... Let, let's say you do that, which is exactly what they did in Game 3. Game 4, a team like Colorado, which wants to be there for the long haul, they're going to do everything in the off day to kind of look at the film and say, this is where they need to be better. And then all of a sudden, 
you look around and you go, it's a 7-1 game. So, I mean, is, is this a chance to kind of turn it around or is, is the next game going to be the last one if you're the Coyotes? So that remains to be seen. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating just to see, you know, as you know, as the, as the time passes and the games build up, you, you do you do wonder about all of the you know the additional mental um, it's not even baggage but just the the mental stamina that it's going to take to win this Stanley Cup and uh, and we're starting to see well let me I'll close this end by asking you are we starting to see maybe the teams that we thought would have that kind of mental stamina uh, even if they didn't play well in the round robin like a Boston or a St. Louis are, are we starting to see that do you think where the teams are starting to separate themselves not just based on skill and coaching but maybe just that will to go the distance or am I reading too much into it? It could be somewhere in the middle just because no matter what people say, we never know all the variables that are going on inside certain dynamics. That said, when you do look at where the playoffs stand at this point, that's what makes a series like St. Louis and Vancouver, to go back to that, kind of the hard part in having this conversation because you would think after the first two games, a team like Vancouver that has had this incredulous season that has been able to do some things, you look at them and think, okay, this looks like a team that's ready to be here for the long haul. What about the Blues? But yes, here you are now two games later when it's all tied at two. And it's like, who's to say what is the case other than both of them have the sort of motivation where they clearly want to advance to the next round. But that's just, again, the hard part in all of this is everybody's situation is going to be different. I mean, who's to say if Arizona was up 3-1 right now, that the conversation wouldn't shift towards, hey, look, does the Arizona Coyotes, does this look like a team that wants to be here? Are the Avalanche the team that looks like they want to head home? Or is it just something structurally that the Coyotes have done to really put themselves in a 3-1 advantage in terms of the series? So that's just always going to be the thing is you can talk about which one affects which the most, but at the same time, it does come back to that fact of if you are winning games and you find yourself playing closely in games, even if you're losing – it might be frustrating, but maybe that gives you a different feel. Whereas if you take a 7-1 loss after the fact that the Coyotes have been practically in every game they've played through the most part, who's to say if that is something that's a spirit-breaking loss or maybe it does something different for them. But either way, we're going to find out in Game 5 what this team looks like and not only that, but how the Avalanche might look knowing that they can close out a series. Because that's the other thing before we run to is you know, look, the Avalanche have closed out series in the past. I mean, we look at Calgary last year, and that was one of those things where as that series went on, it was clear, yes, they might have been the eighth seed, but it turned into they were the more dominant power. Whereas if now their team that came into that series with the understanding of them winning a series is not this cute story. It's expected now. Yeah, that's good. Well, my predictions are often... Well, almost always not particularly accurate. So, but I can I can say with almost one hundred percent certainty, Ryan, that you and I will be having more conversations as this playoff season goes along. But thank you for getting up uh, early and chatting with uh, me this morning, and uh, it's been a ton of fun. You should always read Ryan's Avalanche coverage at the Athletic Denver and follow Ryan at Ryan underscore S underscore Clark. Have a great day, my friend. Thank you so much. You do, you do the same, Scott. Take care. 
All right, you should always check out our comment section for each podcast episode at The Athletic App. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Two Man Advantage on Apple. Tomorrow, Pierre Lebrun and I gather as we do every week at this time for the full-on two-man advantage podcast gerard gallant former jack adams trophy winner will be joining us you can also check out dan hamwis who joins craig Custance on uh, this week's full 60 celebrate dan hamwis's fine career and kenny albert from nbc sports joins mike russo this week on straight from the source at the athletic I'll be back Thursday and Friday morning to update you once more on all of the playoff action. Until then, enjoy the hockey, and thanks for subscribing to The Athletic.